Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about Jade, which I'd never heard of, um, but you seem to be fairly keen on. Well, I saw it when it came out, and it was one of those films that was a terrible flop, but that stayed with me ever since. And the film is, what, 96, 95? 95. 95. So that's a lot of years to be in your head and be, you know, a flop. And actually, I thought for a long time, and I I still think that maybe the main reason why the film continues to resonate for me I mean, my overall feeling is that it's a, it's, a, it's a very bad film I love. And the main reason why I love it is because of Linda Fiorentino. I love She's her. wonderful. She has a real style and she kind of carries the, the tone of the film in her smoky sort yes. of looks and the hair draped over her eye and all that sort of stuff. Yes, but also in her acting. I mean, the two moments that really stayed with me, that touched me, in the film, actually, the only moments that touched me emotionally were her doing. Yeah, so you know, she is to me like uh, a great figure in cinema uh, on the basis of you know very few memorable performances. I mean, I remember her uh, from after uh, Eight, the Scorsese uh, film, and then she was absolutely fantastic. After in, Hours, was um, it? Sorry, after hours. Yeah, I'm going to say after eight. <laughs> you see, I'm tired now. Uh, she was she was in after hours, and then she was in uh, the last seduction, which I think is one of the great noirs of all time. Really, the John Dahl film, uh, and this film. Really, that's kind of yeah. Uh, you know what I remember her for. I can see you know that she's she's also in Men in Black and Dogma and so on. Those are the two um, films but, that I know her from. I don't know her from anything right. else. Um, oh but, well, you must see The Last Seduction. But she but she also like in those films she leaves a great impression. And she's she's actually she's a really wonderful sort of centering presence in Dogma, um, which I know you don't like Dogma, but um, the mm. kind of the wildness and the madness and the kind of the poop monster and all the rest that goes on around her. Mm. She has this kind of very calm centered sort of, she's the the straight man to all the weirdness, and she really works. Mm. So let's say what Jade is about. It's written by Joe Esterhaz, uh, who is one of the big-name screenwriters of the 90s. He wrote a lot of erotic thrillers like these. He wrote Showgirls in particular. He was the highest-paid screenwriter of his time, uh, and then subsequently uh, accused, uh, is it MCA? the big talent agency of ruining his career. But there was a, a, a period, and this falls within that period, where he was, you know, the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. Yeah, his Wikipedia page has some of the figures for the you know, for the script he received. So Big Shots in 87 was sold for one and a quarter million dollars. Basic Instinct, $3. Showgirls, $2. And Jade, he was paid one and a half million dollars for a two-page outline, which shows kind of how big he was by this point. And apparently he also felt that William Friedkin changed the script so much he almost took his name off it. And it's ostensibly true, because I read somewhere else that Friedkin acknowledged this and that it's it's his favourite film, ostensibly. Or mm. Yeah, that's kind of... Um, it's very interesting, because I think the screenplay's a mess. 
I think the screenplay is by far the worst thing about it. But actually, it's one of those films where I think the, the fact that the screenplay is so bad is in part what's enjoyable. And I don't mean that in an uncharitable sense. And I don't mean that in that, you know, I take pleasure in it being so bad that it's good. But I think, you know, this kind of film, a, a proper erotic thriller, you know, how long has it been since I've seen one of those? Like, it's a proper kind of early 2000s, Channel 5, late night, steamy erotic thriller they used to put on on Channel 5, you know, to, when they had no programming to get viewers mm. in. And I thought, God, this is great. I really, I really love this sort of thing. And it speaks to its era so well. Like, yeah. this is when these films were coming out. And this is how they yes. felt. Um, so it's about uh, a murder. And uh, David Caruso is the cop. Or he's the uh, assistant DA who's investigating it. And he seems to know, you know a couple of the people who, who, who get involved. There's a lawyer played by Charles Parmentieri, who's fantastic. Um, Linda Fiorentino is his wife. Mm. Uh, that's how you kind of initially get to know her. And there's a kind of a high level, uh, rich person sex ring, and there's you know, prostitution, and there's people having sex with people that they shouldn't, and this all kind of starts to come out. But I mean, in terms of actual detail of sort of who discovers what and how things turn out, it is, as you say, a complete mess. And to, which, including by the end, the very final twist of who actually committed the murder happens in the last seconds. And you're going, oh, okay, that, I mean, he was never a suspect. That makes no sense. But it's just right for the film, I felt, because it just... Well, I, I don't feel that. I think it's wrong for the film. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the film... So I love it, in spite of all of its faults. But its faults are key ones, because I think this had the potential to be a great film. And it really, you know, and to me, it's just a very a film I love very much that is a complete mess. Mm. And I think part of the problem is there's too much to test testosterone around <laughs> it. Yeah, like the story, in my view, needs to be Jade's story. Mm. Yeah, uh, and actually, it's not right. It's kind of, you know, theoretically, it's the story of the policeman. Though actually, you know, he's got no agency in it at all. Things just seem to happen. He never really seems to discover anything, right? So it's not his story, really. Um, and at the end, it ends up becoming the husband's story, which <laughs> you don't see why. And actually, it would have been a different kind of film had it been really the husband's story, right? Mm. You know, someone who, um, you know, might be driven insane with jealousy, you know, by his wife's doing. Except he only discovers his wife's doing three quarters of the way through the film really so yeah well so well really, as far as it, you know like the, uh, what the twist says is he knew all along because he's the one who committed the murder right at the beginning and he committed the murder because he thought oh well this is all going to get out and ruin both of us that's what the last line of the film tells you the last scene my understanding is slightly different in the sense that he knew about the first person but he didn't know about all the rest he okay didn't know you know that that she gets off on it that she finds freedom and joy and power in this sex with other men. Good right? point. And and isn't that a great story, really? And instead, what happens at the end is the film pulls the rug from under her and imprisons her with a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, with a kind of a you know a punitive, sadistic psychopath, right? So so it's almost like the film's message changes halfway through, right? And it takes a story away from her and loads it onto him which I think is a big mistake. I think the film could have been great, you know, had it been, mm. yeah, about, you know, this woman's desires, really, yeah? 
So, yeah. so the, the scene in which um, the scene in which she goes to David Caruso after this has kind of come out uh, that she is the kind of centerpiece of this of this sex ring and was having sex with powerful men for money, and she describes what she got out of it that it was her choice is is a really powerful sort of performance, and it's a great kind of few lines of dialogue that express that she is not the victim in this. Yes, I thought that was wonderful, and also the contrast between that. And the first sex scene with her husband, which is really plodding and painful for her, though really it's painful for her just because he's so boring doing it. Mm. Yeah, you get a sense. And, you know, she's almost crying at how boring it is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, You have like this little tear. I thought that was a wonderful moment, really. You know, because, yeah, it's not it's not tears from. A physical brutality because you see her do all kinds of other things with people. It's almost tears out of like sadness that it's that she's getting so little pleasure out of it that he can't give her that kind of pleasure. Um, so, so I thought that was you know it has moments like that that are just astonishing. And then what I also like about it, you know, I think my weakness really, you know is that I really love richly produced films. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, and this has all that money can buy, right? <laughs> like, you know, it has it has the best, you know, one of the most famous cinematographers uh, of, of, of the period, uh, Andrew Bartowak. Uh, it's got one of the most famous set designers. Uh, is it Alex Tavularis? So it's yeah. got uh, Bart- Bartowak, Alex uh, Tavularis, uh, Joe Esther has doing the writing. Bob Evans kind of yeah doing the producing, and he produced The Godfather in Chinatown and so on. Yeah, it was a super expensive film. I think it cost fifty million dollars. So so there's a lushness to it. It's got fantastic actors, not mm. a star amongst them. Yeah, but actually it's got a great cast, and I would include in that uh, uh, David Caruso, who at the time had become a huge star on television through, I think it was NYPD Blues. Um, and this was meant to make him a film star. And he and you know he got terrible reviews and it didn't quite uh, make him, well, it didn't. It stalled his film career completely. But I think he's very good, except yeah, he's I like given him a lot. very little to do. Um, so, so the film has real texture and real sensuous pleasures and... Friedkin as a craftsman is, you know, there's no doubt about his accomplishments. Uh, Friedkin as a director, I think, is a different story because he doesn't have control over the story he's telling, right? Mm. And some of the things drove me absolutely nuts, really. You know, so, for example, I hated the use of Chinatown in this film. And actually, the use of Chinatown in this film reminded me a little bit of the way that Latin America was deployed in Sorcerer. I mean, here it's just used for local color. It's used in relation to, you know, the stereotype of Chinatown, which is mysterious, unknowable, a law unto its own. But even those elements aren't kind of exploited, right? Mm. I mean, if you see the bit where they go into the theater, yeah, 
uh, yeah, there's the kitchen, and but then there's a nightclub, and then there are performers on stage, and they run through it. If you compare that to what Hitchcock does with similar scenes, yeah, where you know they they interrupt a showing at the cinema, or yeah, on say, I mean the you know the creation of tension of the performers commenting on the action. Uh, I mean, there's so many things, so many elements, and so many dynamics that you could create in a context like that. Mm. And this feels really thin and unthought through. Yeah. yeah, it also makes the car chase his most boring yet because he just tries to drive through the Chinese New Year and obviously they get very pissed off and yeah. it's, it, it's an obstacle that slows him down and there's nothing exciting to it. It really... And it's kind of offensive because you think, you know, all these generations of Chinese Americans, yeah, and none of them speak English? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean... Uh, it's pretty offensive. It's it's really Orientalist this film, um, but it's also in some ways entrancing, you know. And actually, I was thinking about it because I was saying, you know, can the film be as bad as you keep on saying it is? If you've watched it now three times with pleasure and you wouldn't mind seeing it again, and actually, well, my answer to that is yes, it can <laughs> be that bad, you know. But actually. Let's give credit also where credit is due because it looks fantastic. It sets this mood and this tone and, you know, and it has a richness and so on, yeah? When I started watching it, about sort of half an hour in when I realised, because I really didn't know anything about it, and so half an hour in I'm learning, you know, kind of what this mm. film is and what its style is and tone, and I was thinking, God, this is a proper thriller, and it's, I thought it was it's easily Franklin's most likeable film so far. You know, yes. It, it's in terms of its style, the, the ease of which I kind of got into it and understood the characters. It had it had this kind of cartoony element because it's so heightened and and um, sort of silly and sexual. It's got jokes as well. I mean, we've constantly been saying, or you've constantly been saying, there's not a single laugh in these films. This, this one's got jokes, and I really enjoyed them. The play between the the the, uh, the cops, the detectives, you know, the older one in particular, has always got something to say, and yeah. you know, I enjoyed all of I enjoyed that. I liked all of that as well, except, you know, then there were other things that bothered me. So in the, in, in the supporting cast, for example, like Richard Crenn is very good. But then, you know, you, you have Michael Bean in a film and this is what you do with him? Yeah, I mean, he's completely wasted and everything that he represents is wasted. He's not even shot to look nice, which is, you know, one of his gifts to cinema you know, in, in, in the Terminator and Aliens films and so on, is he looks great. Well, not in this, you know, he doesn't even give you that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's, it's kind of weird in that respect, actually. How can you lose of a control of a story like that, really? Like, where, you know, you don't even know who the protagonist is. The story's called Jade, uh, but, you know, it's not her story, uh, I mean, to some extent, it's about her. And this is where the worst elements of the film come in. So, for example, towards the end, there's that scene where she's having sex with a young man whom you don't even know who he is or, you know. Yeah, but just as the killer is about to get her, there's a there's a sex scene. And you get the feeling they just plonk this sex scene into the film because they need a sex scene, mm. right? You know, they need something that will turn the audience on. So, you know, they have like this um, bodybuilder type, you know, who you've never seen before and won't see again, 
having sex with her, yeah, um, and she doesn't enjoy it. But in the meantime, you know, kind of you get all this sexual imagery of her. It feels like so, so sexist, piggy, mechanical, yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny. I, I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting and dark, although ultimately disappointing as well when you consider the film should be about Jade, that the film ends with her being turned into a sort of sexual prisoner, like, um, like the uh, informant in To Live and Die in L.A., at the yeah. end of this, um, you know, it's revealed that the husband, Charles Palminteri, is the killer. And he has discovered that, that his wife is Jade and that she is kind of uh, a sexual sort of demon and whatnot. And he says, you know, I killed this guy because I knew he's going to blackmail us. She's now stuck with this psychopath, as you say. And he says, next time we make love, introduce me to Jade. You know, he wants the dark side. and stuff. So, like, so the thing that that was free for her through which she she enjoyed power um and and sex is twisted at the end and it's a really dark moment but you think oh it's just a dark moment like it's just there to leave you with that final kind of punch in the stomach and actually the film's not on jade's side really whereas actually up until then you feel to some degree it kind of is you know, or at least you, you you understand her, but then it turns what she is against her. I felt it was nasty. Um, you mean nasty nasty to the character or a nasty kind of thing to watch? Nasty to the character and, um, and a, a real disservice to the film. Yeah, it's kind of, it comes out of a nastiness, you know, because, you know, so on the one hand, I think Friedkin is definitely entranced by darkness, right? And 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 I also detect a kind of interest in S and M, and you know, and so on. Yeah, you know. But again, that could be turned into pleasure or freedom, or yeah, yeah. or power, or. But there's something very sexist and brutal and yeah, dark-edged about turning the tables on her at the end of the film. So something you know that she found a liberation from a marriage she was trapped in, um, all of a sudden, you know, is her prison. Yeah, she ends up entombed with a psychopath, right? Mm. I mean, that's terrible. Yeah. And, well, I suppose the point that I'm making is that it just feels cheap. Um, yeah, and sort of unnecessary, and it's there because it's a dark twist. Um, mm. But then but then the thing is, this is the kind of film where I expect all of that stuff. Really, you know, I expect kind of dark twist to happen for no reason. I expect things to happen just because they are, uh, you know, spectacular or um, sexy or you know, like that's what that's why I don't mind that the plot is nonsensical because it's there to hang, you know, moments on. Well, I mind because you know if you're making claims for Friedkin as a great director, which certainly a lot of my friends are. You know, um, this film fails the test. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could see how it makes an interesting shot, but if you can bring out all of these nuances, yeah, or all of these possibilities, I mean, I think, for example, you know, the Chinatown setting had so many possibilities, right? And and then it just becomes something almost racist, actually, because you know he's not kind of uh, exploiting them. If you can't kind of 
you know, uh, bring in uh, to cohesion a, a narrative that only really has kind of three main people, really, then it's a, it's a problem, you know. So, so I think all of the things that you're describing is, I think, what still makes it enjoyable in spite of it not being a very good film. But it doesn't deny the fact that this could have been a great kind of erotic thriller, right? <laughs> well, the, the, the thing for me though is that I don't think I don't think I know, I don't think I know a single great erotic thriller. I don't associate them with quality. Um, oh well. Yeah. What 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 do you say are the great erotic thrillers? Well, to me, something like Double Indemnity would rank right up there. Is that an erotic um, thriller? Yes. I mean, you know, you might not think so, but like. Barbara Stanwyck in that Angora sweater, kind of, you know, mm. with that anklet, kind of raced men's <laughs> pulses. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, and it's sex that drives Fred McMurray in it, doesn't it? Mm. You know. Well, so, are there erotic um, thrillers from this era that you would count as great? His Basic Instinct one. I, I love Basic Instinct. Yes, indeed. But is it a great? You love Jay, but you know, Jay's not a great film. Is Basic Instinct a great film? To be fair, I can't answer that because, mm. you know, I, I haven't seen Basic Instincts yesterday. Yeah. I thought it was a great film when I saw it. And it's definitely one of the films that I saw, you know, several times at the theater when it came out. Uh, um, now, you know, do I think it's a great masterpiece of cinema? I don't know. Right. But I, I actually think that this is not even a good erotic thriller. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you can like various things in it. And there's certainly a lot of things to, to, to appreciate. Um you know, but again, I mean, I think, you know, what I love about it is the production values and Linda Fiorentino. I mean, those are to me the outstanding elements of it, yeah. <laughs> right? Kind of, you know, uh, there's a lot of weaknesses for the rest. I mean, I, I didn't yeah. like the, 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 the chase scene. Um, I also thought it was pointless. Like, you don't quite know what's at stake in it, really. You know, so, and, and that final bump into the river... I thought, oh, well, that's clever in the sense that they, you know, they probably spent a lot of time doing something unusual. But actually, the car being pushed into the river really adds nothing to the story except, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's just like a, a final murder attempt on him. But it, yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I never associate these films with any kind of quality, despite the fact, as you say, this was an expensive film. This cost $50 million. Um, I do kind of feel like this whole era of the, you know, kind of soft focus, steamy, Richly produced erotic thriller. I I can't think of I can't think of greatness that it produced. It produced tone and steamy moments, and it's something that we look back on and kind of laugh at. And these films are there to titillate, and I you know, I really do, uh, let me refresh my memory, but I don't get the pulses racing. And as you say, like that last moment is all about just the shock of the twist, and it doesn't actually have to mean much. So like, it was very hard for me to be disappointed by it because I didn't expect much. <laughs> Well, I expected more. Um, oh, yeah, there's so many, you know. Uh, I love The Last Seduction. I love Basic Instincts. Uh, there were, you know, more interesting ones, like A Kiss Before Dying. I think this is more like... Um, uh, uh, what's that other Bob Evans-produced one? Um, Sliver, 1993. That's right. Another yeah, Joe Esterhaus one. Sorry. Yes. Uh, so this is more, you know, on that level. Um, hmm. Where do you think this fits into Freakin's body of work? Uh, do you think you do you see kind of 
you know, relationships between this and, and earlier films. Yes. I mean, you know, so we'll talk about this later when we talk about The Exorcist. But, you know, I've been amazed. So I have now seen um, Cruising, The Boys in the Band, The Exorcist, Bug, uh, To Live and Die in L.A., uh, and this one, yeah? And the only happy ending so far is in The Exorcist, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's relative, right? So that's a pattern, right? There are also, I think, recurring patterns about power and control, you know, and being out of control. Um, mm. There's a real obsession with the underside of life, yeah? Um, so either crime or sex or... You know, or yeah, or mm. religion, or yeah. He's interested in the dark side of all of those things. I also think there's um, within all of this great technical skill, there's also a brutishness or a lack of. I was going to say taste, but you know, it might be better put delicacy or nuance. Yeah, mm. um, that I see as a recurring. Yeah, he's interested in shock moments, yeah, fisting and cruising. Do you um, think that his uh, interest in the, you know, sort of underbelly of of uh, human existence, human behaviour, is substantial? Is he interested in why people behave the way they do and why they, you know, why there is a, a, a difference between the way they're like privately and publicly and that sort of thing? Or is it just this stuff is titillating? And it's exciting to look at, excites audiences, and actually there's nothing much deeper to why he's interested in it. He likes the shock and the spectacle. Well, having seen The Exorcist recently, there's no question that he likes the shock and the spectacle, mm. you know. Uh, and I could imagine many months and many meetings went into just the creation of that image where Linda Fiorentino wears the stocking, right? Yeah. So he's definitely, you know, uh, he's he's interested in those brutish shocks. I think there's no question about that. However, you know, I was thinking about it actually, because I'm really enjoying, um, watching, yeah, all of these freaking films, yeah, together, you know, because I mean, I think so part of the argument against authorism really is that you then tend to read each film, you know, in the light of, you know, what these films have in common rather than, you know, uh, uh, um, enjoying the film or encountering the film on its own terms, on its own. And actually, I think, at least for me, I don't think that's true because, you know, I think, I, I mean, my memory's so bad that actually I feel almost in every encounter with a film is on its own terms, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> I can barely remember, you know, what I, what I saw yesterday, much less what I saw 40 years ago. But but I found a real value in actually uh, seeing the films together like this because patterns do emerge and they're interesting patterns, you know. And actually, you know, this almost like refusal to give an audience a happy ending is a really interesting thing. I can't think of it in anyone else. Yeah, that film after film after film, he he makes the the not only the hard choice but the unpleasant choice yeah he removes joy yeah. <laughs> he dooms people he gets them all killed even when they think they've escaped 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, so despite almost everything I've said, there's something about the imagery, about Fiorentino, you know, actually about his mise-en-scene that is very entrancing, you know. Uh, yeah. um, so it's, it's, it's... That's where the pleasures yeah, are. I, it's in the milieu that it builds and the performances and the tone yeah. that it sets and all of that. And that's that's what I loved about it. And that's why I said, you know, actually this is really likeable. It kind of, because it's a film that wants you to take pleasure in it. Hmm. Which is possibly something that is difficult to say about a lot of his other things, a lot of his other films that I've seen so far. Um, you know, they maybe don't want you to have a bad time, but they want to kind of put you through the ringer to some degree. Um, yes. And this and this isn't like that. This is one that wants you excited, you know, yes. and wants you interested. And so that's why I think I come out thinking, yeah, this is likable. I mean, even compared to like to live and die in LA, which was which was lighter in some respects than the other things we watched so far. I had to work with the film to have a good time. Whereas this is like mm. straight up, I, <laughs> you know, yeah. the camera turns the stairs and you see that mask and the music's going. I can't remember what the piece is, but it works so wonderfully. And it's like, oh, this is that kind of film, you yes. know, and there's stuff strewn about and there's glossy blood coming from underneath a painting. Glossy blood. Who's seen that before? Like metallic blood, you know? Yeah. It looks smashing. I think there's no question about that. I suppose in the context of the rest of the, of the work that I've seen, it feels um, trifling is too insulting, but it feels minor compared to the rest of his this work. Film. Yeah. Well, you see, the thing is that I'm beginning to think all of his work is minor. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, so, I mean, I'm a kind of outraged, really that um, anyone should think something like The Exorcist is a masterpiece of the cinema. Um, so I think, you know, to me, he's a, he's a, he's a really skilled director, uh, you know, who knows how to work with form incredibly well. He makes every shot interesting, but he doesn't make every shot count. Mm. Yeah. Still, though, worth a look, Jade. He's good fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In spite of that, I love it. So I do. I do recommend it. Uh, you know, with a warning that I think I think women will find it really sexist, and I think with with good reasons, really. Uh, so um, mm. yeah, yeah. So there you go. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies dot com. Thank you very much. Next time, The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs>